Welcome to Boiling Point, the podcast to motivate ever-evolving entrepreneurs and forward-thinking movement pioneers. Our hosts, filmmaker Greg Hemmings and executive coach Dave Vale, are turning up the heat in the world's business communities. Our interviews with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers are raising the temperature of inspiration. Live from the hottest studio in this quadrant of the universe, here are Dave and Greg. Okay, Steve, welcome back to The Boiling Point, my Thanks, friends. Greg. Yes, I, uh, I am dry now. Uh, my, my humor is dry. My, <laughs> my pants are dry. And everything is good. It's the, it's the continuous uh, saga of dumping coffee over my pants. Greg and his pants. Um, <laughs> and today, we're really excited to bring in um, Hal Movius, who has not only an incredible uh, company that we're going to- Doctor. Dr. Hal Movius to to talk about, but he's also an author of a book called Resolve. And uh, let's let's bring you in, Hal. Hal, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Good to be with you today. Fantastic. And uh, before we press record, I was apologizing to Hal because he sent us his book. But um, truth be told, because Dave is away, I believe he's got it in his suitcase, and he did not pass it on to me. So, Hal, just so you know, the last six episodes I've been on. Uh, on a, a little bit of a vacation as well. So uh, I've been replaced by Steve's wife, Monica, and Steve now has replaced Monica, who is replacing Dave. So we, Monica and I might just end up taking over the whole thing. Well, yeah, I think that's a yeah. great idea. <laughs> so well, what, why don't we start by uh, getting you to introduce yourself to us. Let us know a little bit about, uh, about what you're up to. Sure. So uh, I'm an applied psychologist. Uh, I'm a psychologist by training, social and clinical psychologist. But for the last 20 years, I've focused on uh, helping people to negotiate uh, more effectively in often in very cutthroat environments. And um, and so a central problem problem that I've tried to focus on is how leaders and teams can can protect relationships, can be collaborative and creative when they're under intense um, competitive pressures or in situations where the other side has a lot more power than they do, and and so forth. So for entrepreneurs in particular. Um, I, I taught a course for five years um, at the Harvard MIT program on negotiation called the Program on Technology Negotiations, and we had entrepreneurs come from all over the world um, to learn about negotiating in situations where, you know, you thought your technology was going to be used for one thing, but it turned out somebody wants it for something else, and now you have to negotiate a deal. And um, so I'm, I'm broadly Amazing. speaking, focused on leadership and negotiations. I run a small company and I write books from time to time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, going over a, a few of the notes you were doing, you know, a- asking some really important questions about, uh, mindset versus personality and, uh, different elements of how we look at negotiating and dealing with conflict. Um, do you, want to, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Because uh, I think these are these are themes that most of our listeners can completely relate to. But I've I suspect you've got some very uh, unique angles on this and some new findings for us. Yeah, you know, there's a very strong layperson's belief that the way people negotiate is strongly determined by their personality, and that therefore um, personality is going to have a huge effect on the kinds of outcomes people get at the negotiating table. But really, for the last 30 or 40 years now, we have a pretty big body of research, and many people have, you know, run a lot of experiments, pounded pounded their head on their on the dissertation table, uh, trying to get data 
um, to show the effect of individual differences on on, on negotiation outcomes. And the, the short find the, the summary of the findings is that situational factors have a much stronger impact on how people negotiate than their own personalities do. And I'll give you just one. I'll give you one. It's not the personality doesn't matter, but I'll give you one example that shows you what I mean. Years ago, um, um, Steve Ross and Lee Ward at Stanford did a really interesting experiment where they <clears throat> they took a bunch of uh, dorm counselors who had gotten to know undergraduates in their dorms for you know a period of months, and they said, "We want you to pick out the most competitive and the most mild mannered." kids, you know, and then we want, we're going to run an experiment. We're going to put them into a kind of a, a very limited, um, negotiation environment where they can either cooperate or defect kind of like a prisoner's dilemma game. And we want your prediction on who will, uh, compete or defect and who will cooperate. And the dorm counselor said, Oh, that's easy because you've told us to pick the most competitive kids and the most mild mannered kids. No problem. And they said, well, wait, one more thing though. We're going to randomly assign these kids to, even though the game will be the same and the payouts will be the same um, in terms of the the outcomes they can get by, by cooperating or defecting, we're going to call the game either the community game in one condition or the Wall Street game in a second condition. And it turned out when they looked at what people did in this game, both in the, in the first move they made and in the, and in the sum total of all the cooperative or competitive moves that they made, that the name of the game accounted for all of the variants and the personality of the kids accounted for zero. Mm. And so and so that's part one. And then part two is they took this finding back to the dorm counselors and they said, guess what? You know how you predicted that the personality of the kids would matter a, a lot and the name of the game wouldn't matter at all? Well, it was the opposite was true. You know, the name of the game predicted, you know, it's about two thirds of the time, all the kids in the wall street game defect and all the kids in the community game cooperate. Huh. It doesn't matter in their personality. So they said, so the dorm counselor said, well, you, you must, there, it must've been a fluke. Hmm. And the, and the experimenter said, well, we're going to, we're glad you said that because we're going to run the experiment again next year. And we want you to make uh, you know, we're going to come back to you in three or four months. We want you to make predictions again. So they do that. They come back again. And, and dorm counselors say, well, no, the first set of data, that was just fluky. We're, we're, we're going to make the bet again. We're doubling down that the competitive kids will, will compete and the cooperative kids will, will collaborate. And again, they got exactly the same result. So what this speaks to is, I think, both how pervasive and hard to change our beliefs about personality and negotiations are, and also that we, we overlook how important something relatively simple like how we frame, how we name a game or how we frame a situation, how important that can be in determining the way we actually end up behaving. Oh, my gosh. We're, we're so much more laboratory animals uh, than we think we are. <laughs> I'm actually thinking about renaming, somehow renaming our whole morning routine. Right. It's, just, yeah. it's hard to see the lab around you, I guess. Yeah, we've got a five-year-old, and I feel like by the time I get to work at nine, I've lost 10 negotiations at least per day. And I'm exhausted. <laughs> I think we have to change yeah, the situation somehow. That's, Rename everything. That's a really good point. Oh, it kills uh, us. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I, I think that we're going to have a, a good discussion on uh, competition and negotiation in this call. Um, 
I just I just got back from a really interesting experience called Hatch Experience, and it was in Panama, and um, it was a uh, it was an invitation to I don't know sixty or seventy really interesting thinkers and change makers from around the world really um, just to get together and talk three or four days using creativity a lot of filmmakers journalists scientists uh, you know a whole bunch uh, just really people who are passionate about making change and um, it was interesting we did one of these design thinking. Uh, sprints and we you know separate ourselves in different groups of themes and I ended up in the in the education theme like I wanted to find ways how do we disrupt education how do we make education better more accessible and of course everybody puts ideas up on the walls uh, on you know on uh, little post-it notes and whatnot and we really quickly come down to solutions and we ended up dividing into four different groups and at the end of the day we were going to bring two of the four ideas to the greater greater group and it was really interesting to see uh, as soon as that context was given to us that there's going to be two winners and two losers, the competitive spirit started to to race, even though this was just an exercise where they're really, hey, may, maybe some of the stuff would actually come to fruition and become a real project. But really, it was a exercise in collaboration. But as soon as there was a, a sense of co- competition... I could see it and feel it well up that everybody was started to become defensive about their, uh, you know, about their piece. And I remember I was I was filming all the, all the presentations and I just reminded everybody that hey we're here, and you know not 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 to not to diminish awesome thinking, but I was I was like all of these ideas are awesome, <clears throat> but we are here to solve a very interesting problem, you know. And uh, as soon as I reset that context, that s- sense of competition diminished it was really interesting to, to witness that and i was just a member of mm. i wasn't the lead i was just a member just reminding people like it's okay if, if your idea doesn't win <laughs> you know because we're all going for after the same yeah. the same goal um what, what, what can well, you no, say on great, that great yeah. example yeah like like what, how does that land in your research that type of contextual setting even in competitive environments well really the you know so i i wrote a book um seven or eight years ago called Built to Win with Larry Susskind at MIT. And that book was about how people go away to training programs and negotiations and they learn new ways of thinking about negotiation that it doesn't have to be win-lose and a tug-of-war and so forth. But then what happens is most people go back to their work environment and they find that it's really hard to actually deploy all these things in practice. And so we wrote a book about all the things that organizations do that get in the way of people being more creative and collaborative and disciplined in negotiation. The book that I have out this year, Resolve, is about how, in, in, if you imagine that, that most work settings, probably most life settings, are what social psychologists would call a mixed motive environment. That is, we have we have some motivation to cooperate. And then as you point out, there can be very subtle shifts that happen. And all of a sudden people are like, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm good with cooperating, but I also have to get my fair share or Mm. I want to be recognized or I want to feel smart or I, you know, I need what I need. I need my needs met too. And so most of what we've been teaching people over the last 20 or 30 years, when they come to negotiation seminars or training programs, is that there's a better way of doing things, but that our kooky brains, 
you know, that think fast or think slow or think irrationally. And there's a, a lot of great books that have come out in the last four or five years. Uh, books like, uh, you know, Predictably Irrational, um, the Dan Ariely's book, and Thinking Fast and Slow, Dan Kahneman's book. If it weren't for our goofy brains, we would do things better. But our goofy brains end up, you know, causing us to make all kinds of mental errors and take all kinds of shortcuts. <laughs> and, um, and that therefore, when you are in a negotiation or in a situation where there's potential conflict or conflict, the last thing you should be is confident. You know, the confidence is not a good thing. Confidence in conflict is a bad thing. It protracts conflicts. It means people dig in. They're sure that they're right and so forth. And yet, in my practice, most of what I notice is that people are incredibly conflict-diverse. And when you survey even CEOs at large companies, what's the problem that you most need help, help with, that you would most want to have coaching about? They say managing conflict. And even though people fill out surveys and say, if you ask people, what's your conflict resolution style, people will say, oh, I'm collaborative and creative, and when I have to compromise, I compromise, and sometimes I can be a little assertive. And so, you know, everybody would like to think that. But the reality is, you know, when you, it's like with your five-year-old, if, if your neighbor's dog is barking and it's driving you crazy, a surprising percentage of the time, people will sit there and be really annoyed, but not go over and knock on the door and say, hey, could you do something about that barking dog? Um, and so I, and in business, there are all kinds of examples of this where people say how tough they're going to be and how, you know, we really believe in our product and we're going to go in there and then they fold mm -hmm. or they don't even try to negotiate a salary increase because they're afraid of what might happen. So I'm just saying, I got very curious in this idea of confidence. Is confidence a good thing or not a good thing? And, um, because it, because people I think are surprisingly conflict averse in most situations and in most situations where they go to negotiation seminars, they, we teach them that there are good reasons not to be confident. But in the book, Resolve, what, I, what the research led me to conclude is that confidence is not, it's not like a Goldilocks problem where you should have some, but you know, not too much. It's really three different things. It's, it's mastery, which is behavioral confidence. Can I, can I do something or say the right things without having to think too hard about it? And that requires planning and having a process and practicing. And then there's emotional confidence, which is, can I maintain poise? Can I keep myself cool in situations where the other person's behavior is distressing or annoying, where I'm feeling powerless, where time is running out? And finally, there's cognitive confidence, which is the awareness and the awareness to go beyond sort of our intuitive thinking, which we all rely on, particularly at moments of conflict and Steve, particularly with our five-year-olds, I think, because mm -hmm. that's all they do. They just interact based on their own intuition. Yeah. But, you know, when the stakes are really high and when relationships matter, it's kind of like we, we have to be more like the surgeon who uses a checklist, even though they've done surgery a hundred, you know, mm. 500 times or the airline pilot who uses a checklist, even though they've flown the plane thousands of times. There's a reason that we do that, and it's because, you know, our brains aren't perfect. And so we need ways of reminding ourselves as we approach a potentially 
difficult situation with another person or group, that there are certain systematic moves that we should make, that we should direct our attention in more systematic ways and not just sort of rely on intuition, which can be, you know, intuition is good for a lot of things, but when the stakes are high in conflicts, it's, it's, you know, a faulty system potentially. So that's, that's really what this book is about. And, and this idea that in life, you know, we have friends and foes and very often they, um, the same person can seem like a friend or a foe, you know, in the same meeting, depending on the thing they just said. And, um, and so I wanted to write about what I think both science has has suggested might be true and what I found in my own practice in terms of how to teach people to be more confident in negotiating, approaching conflict and in negotiating without becoming arrogant or pushy or foolish. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I've never really thought about it that way. And, you know, confidence in negotiation obviously has come up even in the media recently just because of politics. And, um, Indeed. you know, there's a whole backstory to that, but I'm just thinking about, I, I never really thought about the the potential negativity of confidence in negotiation. And like Greg's company, Having Sales Pictures, and ours, Acre Architects, are both relatively new companies and small companies. And are, we're friends with a lot of other uh, new business owners. And I think the psychology of the feeling of determining worth or not um, feeling worthy at the beginning is a real disadvantage going into a negotiation, like as you're getting new clients and looking for new work, people often undershoot their worth, not necessarily in Absolutely. terms of money, but in terms of value, overall value to the end product or the value that they, someone will get. And I think that, so there's, you know, the maybe my intuition would have said, no, it's about, that may be true, but then you go in and maybe be un, or foolish, foolishly overconfident is actually shooting in the foot, right? So do you have any, have you had much experience with sort of that new, I guess maybe determining worth um, versus confidence in negotiations? Absolutely. And I'll give you two, I'll give you two different examples. So in the, in the example you just mentioned, which is, you know, smaller businesses, entrepreneurs, and particularly entrepreneurs that have, that are in the technology world mm -hmm. where you are convinced that your technology is the most brilliant, cutting edge, convenient, fill in the blank. And if you could only get the customers to understand why that's true, you know, if they would only wake up and realize that what they're using is so kludgy or what the opportunity looks like. And so that directs people toward, you know, there's something called psychologists call the endowment effect, which is, that if you invent something, you value it more than if somebody else invents it. If you own something, you value it more than if someone else owns it. Mm. So, for example, in classes, sometimes I'll give half the class um, like an executive pen that's worth, you know, I don't know, five bucks or something. So the right side of the class all gets an executive pen and the left side of the class doesn't, but, they're, but they get to go and look at somebody's executive pen for 60 seconds and... Mm and, you know, check it out and see what they think of it. And then you ask the people who were given the executive pen to write down the price at which they'd be willing to sell it. And you ask the people who didn't get the pen how much they'd pay to get it. And the people who own the pen say, well, I wouldn't take anything less than nine bucks. And mm -hmm. the people who didn't get the pen say, well, I'd give you about 250 
And mm-hmm. this is why everybody's got attics and garages full of crap that they think is going to be worth something someday <laughs> on eBay, right? It's, you know, yeah. it's, you know, so that's, so there's that, there's that part of being an entrepreneur that it's like, I've spent five years doing this. I understand this competitive space and this technology better than anybody else. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go and try to persuade everybody. And the big risk there is that you don't spend enough time at the outset thinking really hard and asking lots of questions about what is my customer's problem? What problem are they trying Mm -hmm. to solve? And if I could get them to talk to me and if I could really understand where they're starting from and how they look at the problem, then I would make the case for what I'm trying to sell them in a much more effective and different way. And I think particularly with technologists, people don't realize how much they know and how, how little sometimes the people across the table from them know. So it sets up a very frustrating dynamic. The, the other context is a situation in which, let's say you're an entrepreneur, you could be a much bigger company. And you, across the table from you is Walmart, let's say. And, and they say, have we got a deal for you? 99 for us, one for you. But one is going to be really good for you. Because we're Walmart, and this is, you know, you have a chance to, you know, you have a chance to grow by a thousand percent, and and so what happens here is people think, you know, what power do I have? I don't have any power. What can I do? I just have to do whatever they tell me I'm going to do. I have no leverage at all, and they fold. And again, the thing to do here would be to say, what can what what is how do they see? the value of what I have. How did they, how should I understand the problem that the value of the problem that I can help them solve or the value of what an agreement would mean to them. And therefore, if I understood how big the pie was, then I could make a good argument for claiming a bigger piece of it. Mm. Um, and so I've coached teams in both situations, teams that were way overconfident and really weren't thinking hard enough about how irrelevant their pitch was to the people that they were going to, you know, talk with and other teams that are, have convinced themselves that, you know, they're doomed essentially. And they're going to, whatever, whatever their major customer, their, their, you know, their pilot customer who represents 80% of their revenue right now, whatever they say, we're going to have to do. And that's not true either. So that's what I mean by confidence being such an interesting construct because, it's really, as a coach in particular, the, the question is how do you help people take apart that problem and see it differently? And how do you, what kinds of things do you help them practice and, what, and to what extent do you direct their attention elsewhere um, so that they're effective? Well, Hal, this is a really interesting conversation. Uh, we're coming to the end of our half hour. A couple of things I, I want to you to explain how people can get your book and get in touch with you and attend your seminars. But first, uh, the quick question is, um, for quick answer is negotiation learned. Or are you born with it? It's learned <laughs> what you're born with. What you're born with is temperament, which is, um, for example, anxiety is highly heritable. So there's some people who are sort of more on the nervous end like me. And there are some people who are, you know, pretty mellow all the time. Um, and it's really important, as I argue in the book, to, to figure out your own tendencies. But there are so many other things 
that determine um, the outcome that you get in a negotiation. So just as one example, if um, extroverts tend to accept first offers quickly, they're more reward oriented and they want to, they want to, um, uh, they want to get a deal. They want the reward of having closed the deal. So they often say yes to things that aren't so great. Mm. But if you just do one simple thing, and that is to teach them to set a high but reasonable aspiration going in, like write down how much you want to get, again, the effective personality gets wiped out. So the short answer is it's we are born with certain things. It's not like there isn't such thing as temperament or personality, but there are things we can learn to do that make a much bigger difference. That's awesome. Amazing. And, and yeah. what, what's, what is the best way for folks to uh, stay in touch? And definitely we'd love to drive uh, some sales of the book as well as some uh, as participation to some of your seminars. Get, to, get our listeners uh, engaged with you, uh, Dr. Hal. Yeah, the best thing to do, well, first of all, the book is available at major booksellers um, everywhere, Amazon, um, you know, anywhere online, you should be able to get it. Um, resolve negotiating life's conflicts with greater confidence. And I would encourage anybody to write to me directly, which is hal at mobiusconsulting.com. We don't typically do open enrollment seminars, um, but there are, um, I'm always interested in hearing from people, particularly if they have a response to the book or, or a question, I'm pretty responsive to people by email. So um, you know, I would extend that invitation to all of your listeners. That's awesome, Hal. And I, whenever Dave uh, emerges out of the woods, I can't wait to grab the book out of his hands. And I'll, <laughs> I'll send you a note after I get through it. I'm really stoked to continue mm-hmm. learning about this uh, this topic. So thanks so much, my friend. Yes, yeah, thank you. And Fantastic. Thanks for your time. We'll Enjoyed stay- being on. Okay, thanks so much. Take care, Hal. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, really quick takeaway, uh, Steve. I was just thinking, just as he was talking, how like <clears throat> I don't know how many times it would be you negotiate in a day, whether it's with your partner, like little things like can you go get the kids? I'll do this. Like it's it's constant. Not like you're trying to always win everything. It's not about that. It's fair or just you need something, but like it is literally all day. Yeah, con- it is. Yeah. It is constant. But I was just kind of going it's- through my day and thinking. All these little negotiations, especially when you always think about kids. the big one, right? As a, a big deal <laughs> or something, but like, yeah, um, we're we're totally out of time right now. But what I would like to have gone further into is um, the confidence, because at one part he was mm-hmm. talking about don't rely on your confidence in negotiating. Yeah. But on the flip side of his message was confidence is really an important thing too. So maybe that would be something we'll continue to talk about. Yeah, sometimes it's those, it's those pre decisions leading up to not the. You always think about the boardroom kind of confidence, right? The deal part. Right. But like there's all those layers to extending value, thinking about what is a fair deal, but like being confident in yourself or in your business or what your product is. Got an idea. Why don't we see if that uh, real estate developer, Donald Trump, mm-hmm. I, I, maybe mm-hmm. he can uh, come on the boiling point and talk about the art of the deal. Perfect. We'll compare, uh, and then we'll compare notes. Far too soon. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you next week, Steve. Okay. Thanks for checking out this episode of Boiling Point. Remember to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Boiling Point Pod. To see more from Dave Vale, check out leadershipunleashed.ca or visioncoachinginc.com and on Twitter at Dave underscore Vale. And to catch up with Greg, visit Hemmingshouse.com and at Greg Hemmings on Twitter. Thanks for listening and remember, keep that pot boiling.
looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man Podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.